Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning has gone completely virtual. We've taken both our Level 1 and Level 2 courses and loaded them onto an online platform so that you can digest the power of this amazing operating system from the comfort of your home. We combine this recorded video experience with live Zoom labs to bring all the principles and practices of reconditioning to life through applied case study. In turn, you walk away with how to best use this language of common practice to bring the worlds of therapy and performance together in one powerful approach that creates lasting change in your client's performance. This fall, ReconditioningHQ.com is launching a complete experience package that brings all of the video teachings together with a powerful mentorship program and a weekly community touchpoint so you can grow as the reconditioning revolution grows. We are truly excited about the possibilities. We believe that success in any venture begins with the right mindset. We know that the statistics for burnout in human performance are significant and that many of our colleagues face questions every day about personal fulfillment and living their best life. This is why we've started a landmark program for human performance professionals called Empower You. This program is all about crafting your best life, living purposefully, and enjoying the fruits of your impassioned labor. For more information about reconditioning courses or our amazing Empower You program, head over to reconditioninghq.com and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 Canadian off the program of your choice. Understatement alert for sports performance coaches and proactive healthcare professionals, the last six months have been very challenging. We are now seeing the permanent changes in our profession, how our services are delivered, are affected, and we must adapt. Providing safe and effective health and fitness coaching has never been more needed, yet never been more uncertain. Matrix Fitness Canada wants to help you in your journey. Matrix Fitness is a premier brand of fitness equipment designed for organizations, professionals, and exercisers alike. If you are refreshing your facility, they can help. If you are in need of setting up clients with their home gym space, they can help. The Matrix Fitness Canada Ambassador Program is designed to help you expand the reach of your services. This program supports your expertise in supporting home gym design so your clients can have what they need to continue to subscribe to your services. The best part? You can insert yourself into the economic equation as a Matrix Fitness Canada Ambassador. For more information on requirements to qualify and the details around their services, please connect with Nikki.Turner at jhtcanada.com. Welcome to our newest Leave Your Mark sponsor, Rep Performance. Rep Performance is a web application founded by NHLers Nick Foligno and his strength and conditioning coach, Callan McGibbon. Understanding the importance of the developmental stages and their impact on long-term athlete development, they launched an online performance for coaches, trainers, or teachers that would instill a foundation of fitness, share their story, and help them ensure no athlete slips through the cracks and they are equipped to succeed in sport in life. Visit them at Rep Performance App 
Com. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Mark Bubbs. Marks is a naturopathic doctor, consultant, performance nutritionist for Canada basketball and Altus, speaker and former strength coach. Mark is also the author of the best-selling book Peak, The New Science of Performance that is Revolutionizing Sports, an integrated and personalized approach to an athlete health, nutrition, recovery and mindset, as well as regular contributor to Breaking Muscle and the Nutrition Advisory Board member for Strong magazine. Mark has been working with elite and professional athletes, busy executives, and motivated individuals aiming to improve their health for almost two decades. Using an evidence-based approach to nutrition, fitness, and lifestyle modifications, he regularly presents at health, fitness, and medical conferences throughout the world and consults with professional sports teams in many of the major professional leagues. He is also a husband and father of three girls. I am happy to have him with me here today. Welcome, Mark. God, appreciate it. Sorry, sorry, I gave you the long intro there. We'll have to okay. <laughs> abbreviated version next time. <laughs> yeah, I, I like. I, I find out many things by reading them, <clears throat> but I always like to finish with the father piece because when you're a father of three girls, you you deserve some yeah. kind of honorable me- medal of some sort or another. So <laughs> finally, something in common with the Rock. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about uh, your your life growing up. Are you're a Canadian born? So you yeah. grew up where uh, exactly? And so I grew up in uh, Oakville and Burlington, so just outside of Toronto. Um, my dad worked for CCM and the, and the only, you know, the hockey equipment company and the only sport I didn't play was ice hockey. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember, you know, a rep baseball team in the summer times, all the same kids were on the, on the rep hockey team in the winter time, except for me. And so I remember being like eight, nine or 10, maybe. And, you know, asking my dad, like, how come I'm not playing? How come I never played ice hockey? And he says, well, you know, you know, first thing he says was, well, you know, practice is at 5.30 in the morning and basketball was after school. <laughs> so it was, uh, that's sort of what got me into basketball. And it's funny how uh, all these years later, I mean, this is before the Raptors and everything else, you know, going back a little while. But, uh, but yeah, I grew up around Toronto and... Uh, that's funny because I think, uh, you know, being parents, we don't always think about these things when we put our kids into sports. And then we have this revelation that, oh, my God, I got to I got to sit out here. I got to sit in this cold arena or I got to yeah, <laughs> go yeah, exactly. do this or that. My daughter started playing basketball recently and I was like, that's actually pretty good. Warm, warm gym. <laughs> Running yeah, shoes is the only cost. Time <laughs> reasonable time of day, uh, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. No equipment costs. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> so. You you grew up an, uh, an athlete. Um, so how does academia sort of grab you, and what what grabs you in academia as you're growing up? Yeah, I mean, growing up, I mean, I was you know played all bunch of sports as I said. I was always a you know lankier ectomorph type kid, and later in high school, was trying to add on the pounds, and and was you know getting successful at doing so. But then just getting you know it seemed like I was full of mucus and run down all the time, and just always getting sick, which you know not in common when you're high school with all the training and and lack of sleep and those types of things but it was just you know exaggerated and so this is my last year of basketball looking to really make a you know have that sort of big final year and just couldn't shake all these colds and flus and so that that was the first thing that kind of put the light bulb on around just food and nutrition because you know after going to see your family doc and a few specialists it was someone who just basically said hey take a bit of this stuff out of your diet and see how you get on and it was like almost like flipping a switch, which is obviously pretty rare when we talk about nutrition, but just taking some of those foods away, congestion goes down, mucus goes down, not getting colds and flus. And so even at like 18, you sort of think to yourself, 
something going on here. You know, this is, this is like the mid mid nineties, but, uh, that was the first thing that sort of piqued my interest. And then, uh, you know, still wasn't sure what I wanted to do in university, but something around health, whether it was to be a GP or a Cairo or something to do with, uh, you know, with, with food and an exercise was definitely, even at that point was, was a passion. Mm-hmm. So are your parents big influencers of you uh, go, going up or are they more just letting Mark become Mark on his own kind of thing? Or are they drivers? Well, it's interesting. My wife's British and my mom's French Canadian. And so that sort of French Canadian, French passionate side of being intense, you know, that when I, when I was growing up, that was, there was, you know, it was a lot of just telling you what to do uh, in French. You know, it wasn't a lot of, you know, today when we parent our kids, it's probably a better method of, you know, options and everything else. But, man, that's not how it was in my house. It was, you know, I, my dad was, he, he doesn't speak French, but he he was more of the laissez faire. You know, he was just more like the, he, he probably got off easy, actually. He left all the disciplines of my mom. Um, so how did they meet, actually? So if a French-Canadian and English-Canadian guy get together, how does that all come down? I mean, they have a really funny story, actually. My dad was working for, I think it was Polaroid back in the day, and some of his colleagues had said to him, you know, the secretary in such-and-such a department, you know, I think she's single, you know, go go ask her out. Um, so he goes and does it, but that day, that, that lady's sick, and my mom's the temp. <laughs> so, he, you know, so he asked my mom out, and... You know, the rest is history. So it's amazing this kind of sliding door moments in life, right? With uh, That's hilarious. That so how did the influence of French and English culture sort of um, affect you growing up? And how has it sort of changed the way you see things now in some sense, having both of those cultures in your in your space? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how as you evolve and as you grow up, you appreciate things more. Because when, you know, I went to an all-French school, but in, a, in Oakville or Burlington, so these are English neighborhoods for anyone who's not from the area um and so in school you speak nothing but french because your peers are can they speak english as well you sort of end up gravitating to english a lot and of course the teachers are always on you to make sure you speak french and you know it it sort of feels like homework a lot of the time you know and so you know you're going through it and it's enjoyable but on the out you know the outside of school you're always speaking english and so it was amazing how i didn't uh, appreciate that as much until well, I actually went to an English-speaking high school because they had a better basketball team. But we'll leave that. <laughs> that was a cause. It was a bit of a bit of a you know, issue there. But it wasn't until actually after university I went and lived in France for a year. And then it's like all those moments in your youth when you're growing up, you start to see things a bit through the lens of what your parents were, mm-hmm. you know, the goals that they had for you. And it was uh, it was a really cool experience to be able to. I lived in Toulouse in the south of France, sort of a town with a university town where they have big, big companies like Airbus and things like that. So it was uh, a really unique experience and a chance to, yeah, then you really start to appreciate languages and, you know, kind of understanding some Spanish at that point as well and English. And you just, until you get out of your atmosphere where your, your environment, where you're at, you just don't, uh, and of course being younger, you, you don't appreciate it. But, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, that, that definitely played a, you know, played a role in, in, in the development, even though I was probably didn't realize it until then. That's cool. So you excel, relatively speaking, in basketball. Do you take that uh, a long way in your in your young life? Or yeah, I mean, I was I was pretty good back back in the day. Although it was sort of you know then I was a tall kid at twelve or thirteen, almost six foot. And by the time I'm in grade twelve, I'm just only six foot two. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I don't know what happened there in the middle, but uh, um, so this is where you know the passion was driven a lot towards things like basketball and baseball, but then golf was a bit of a just a pastime um 
but as I got more into it and, you know, this was when Tiger Woods was coming up and, you know, the average guy on tours hitting at 258 and as a 16 year old, you're hitting at 350. You think, geez, this is, maybe this is the one that's going to, um, but soon realized after playing college golf that most of these guys hit it long and straight and they can chip and putt. So you think it's a whole different animal, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, played a, played a collection of things. And, you know, I think between the teamwork of team sports and especially basketball, cause it's just such a tight knit, those five players together, what you can accomplish. And then, you know, golf's a <laughs> talk about dedicate. I mean, it's one of the most humbling sports, isn't it? I mean, even guys on tour, you see them shoot 80. I mean, for them, that's like the rest of us shooting a hundred, you know, um, but yeah, like you those, said, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's so many dimensions to the game, but the biggest dimension probably, and we'll get into this a bit is the mind at the end of the day. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it is, I guess even just the level of, if you're a scratch golfer at your local club to a, you know, club pro to a Canadian tour pro. I mean, it's just the levels that go up. I mean, it's so hard to appreciate that skill level. I just, even between the that six inches, like you mentioned between the years. So, Tell me about your, 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 you call it university, your educational pathway. When do you sort of choose what you're going to do or does that sort of just organically develop over time? Yeah. I mean, I got kind of lucky. I was out at university. I was out at UBC. Um, and as I was going through, they had this course called integrated sciences, which basically said, you know, I was thinking again, pre-med, maybe chiropractor, et cetera. Um, but you sort of had to specialize into, you know, microbiology or biochemistry. And, you know, even then I just sort of had interests to kind of wanted to do a lot of different things. And they had this course that basically integrated sciences. You could take upper level sciences from like kinesiology, nutrition. Uh, you could do microbiology, but you could do all these, like a collection of different. And so that, you know, for me, that was a, that was a home run, but it was, it was always funny. I was the kid in the class that was like, why is he, like, he's not, so at that point, you normally have all the same students in most of your classes, but there'd be a few of us that were bouncing around. Um, but that was a nice way to appreciate just what happens in movement and then what happens in, and you, you know, at that point I started getting into exercise and nutrition, but it was almost like, you know, a lot of these fields weren't talking to each other. Or if you, you know, if you shadowed with a doc and talked about nutrition or exercise, I mean, most of them thought it was going to be helpful, but they didn't have a lot of time or tools to be able to use it for clients mm. who were struggling with hypertension or prediabetes or this type of thing. So, I mean, just to see how much that needles moved in the last 20 years is, is, is really impressive. I mean, it's uh, something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, like when you're starting out, who are you looking to um, in essence to parallel yourself with, or who's, who's representative of what you can be or think about being, is there somebody that you are motivated by or are you just kind of finding it yourself? Yeah. I mean, at that point it was a struggle because it was, didn't seem like, you know, if you, if you went down the GP route, then you were sort of a certain order of the day and things you could do. And uh, you know, if you were into these other modalities and so like, like a lot of my peers at the time, I was like, I don't know, I'm not sure which one to do, so I'll just go take some time off. So I, you know, spent a year working abroad in Central America, you know, working and traveling, and then did my year in France after that, and then ultimately, the gap years three and four it turned out to be working as a personal trainer in London, um, and then that's really where the the dots connected with working with clients who were trying to lose weight, but you know, also had appreciation for for you know glucose control and some of those things and you can see geez these guys are getting fitter and healthier and it's just because they're moving this way or and eating this way and making these small changes and so at that point in my mind i thought okay i'm gonna you know 
think about going into and just being in Canada, actually, I mean, environments, everything, the fact that there's a naturopathic medicine degree, you know, that sort of resonated. And interestingly, it wasn't, you know, back then there wasn't, you see now with PhDs and nutrition and all these courses and masters, like none of that was even existed back then. Mm. Um, and so the avenue for me was, okay, I, I can, I could pursue this and, and really use food and movement to help, you know, help people who are struggling with their health. Mm. When's, is there a first moment where you're doing this and you kind of with a client or what have you, and you have a call it a revolutionary moment with somebody where you kind of see everything come together and it really sort of makes you feel like, Hey, I'm on the right path. Do you you have a moment like that with a client or an experience of your own where it's just like, wow, okay, I'm, I'm, I got to keep going because this is amazing. Our sponsor, Rep Performance, is a web application launched by co-founders Nick Foligno and Callan McGibbon. Their platform is designed for teachers and youth sport coaches with pre-designed testing templates and AI-driven workouts geared to individual needs. They aim to provide every coach the ability to develop fitness for life in the athletes of tomorrow, share their story, and help them ensure no athlete slips through the cracks, and they are equipped to succeed in sport and life. Visit them at Rep performanceapp.com today. Our sponsor, Matrix Fitness, produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. With equipment that focuses on building speed, power, and explosive performance in the most efficient manner, Matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations worldwide. COVID has forced us all to rethink how we are offering our services. With that in mind, Matrix Fitness Canada has created an ambassador program designed to help you expand the reach of your services. This program supports your expertise in supporting home gym design so your clients can have what they need to continue to subscribe to your services. The best part? You can insert yourself into the economic equation as a Matrix Fitness Canada ambassador. For more information on requirements to qualify and the details around their services, please connect with Nikki.turner at jhtcanada.com. A, a little bit. I mean, one of the more interesting ones, I think, maybe for the listeners, is, is the opposite of like typically in practice, you know, weight loss is such a key driver of all the changes that happen with your, you know, from a metabolic health and blood glucose and hypertension. And people's expectations of losing weight are so driven by rapid change, hmm. right? Everybody wants to lose a pound a day or, you know, 14 pounds in a month or whatever it is. And so when you first start out in practice, you just sort of tailor your plans to, to achieve that, right? Like you, you say, wow, look at all the weight we lost in a month. Um, the problem is most of that weight's not fat, right? You can only lose so much fat in a week and we're mostly made of water and, and muscle weighs a lot. So if you lose a lot of that stuff, you can lose a load of weight. And so Early on in my practice, you end up realizing that if I stick with this, like they love it after the first month, things get slow in month two. And if you want to work with someone for a long period of time, all of a sudden you've painted yourself into a corner because now in months three and four and going on, you know, metabolic rate starting to slow. We can't just keep trimming calories. And so we've, you know, we've, we've set ourselves up for permanent roadblocks and we have to go all the way back to square one. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's when the lights kind of went on of, and this is where it helps with working in sport of just being, you know, we're going to take this slow and steady. And even though in the first month people are going to be chomping at the bits to want to go faster, you know, the more experience you get and everything else, you're able to kind of manage those things and say, Hey, just trust the process, you know, 
things are going to you know, keep getting these small gains in months two, three, four, five. Like that was the hardest part because even initially you'd want to dovetail back to, okay, well, we'll just do something for them to lose a bunch of weight in the next week or two to make them happy. Mm. But again, you're going to sacrifice in the long term. So, right. you know, a bit like with exercise, there's no sort of shortcut, is there? I mean, you sort of have to put the work in, you've got to follow a plan, and you can't really, you know, fast track it that much. I mean, obviously, working with the right people and the right plan helps, but even then, there's no substitute for just being consistent and showing up and doing the work. And that's not a very sexy message for most people, right? <laughs> that's ultimately the message, but it's not so sexy sometimes when you're trying to sell it. I actually yeah. want to circle back for one second before we get into some um, yeah. stuff around that. But I'm curious, actually, I didn't know the, all the cultural aspects. So you've, you've got French Canadian and English Canadian, you go down to South America, you go to France, you're living in England, you know, how have, when you talk about food <laughs> there's a lot yeah. of different food in those different places there's the history french canadian foods there's you know english Canadian. there's you know all these different things so how does that actually paint or modify your the way you look at all this stuff uh and how other cultures manage it and deal with it etc and what you've seen you know yeah i tell you what there's a there's, a, there's an example that might really highlight this like at the university i worked in bars and restaurants as a bartender to you know make money and pay for school and whatnot and then and of course in north america you know when it's when your shifts cut you you know you go off and do your thing you maybe eat some fries or something but you're not you know they're not taking care of your food you pay for your own food so i go over to france i'm teaching english over there but on the side i'm working in a restaurant in the restaurant where the stade toulousain so the big rugby club and for those who aren't familiar i mean rugby in france isn't that big except for this pocket in the south of France where it's just enormous. It's like American football. Like it's just, and all of a sudden these, you know, the French population in that area, like they just shoot up like the size and strength of them, you know, it's just like a different, different person. And so I end up working at this restaurant, really nice restaurant owned by the guy who owns the team. And, you know, the first week there, the lunch shift is cut. And so, you know, I got a couple hours to kill before the dinner shift. And then, you know, the manager says, are you staying for lunch? And I said, oh, you know, like, okay, yeah, so sounds good, you know, kind of being. And so not only do we sit down for lunch on the house, we sit down with the head chef who runs the restaurant. We eat all the nice food that they would serve the clients. We're drinking red wine. In my mind, I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, this is amazing. Um, and so that was funny because it just it showed me how much it's embedded in the culture of food because – they weren't trying to impress any of their employees. This was just how they operate. Um, and I found it interesting because in all the employees, I mean, we were, we'd work our butts off, right? I mean, we, we love the restaurant. We'd work our tails off. We work late. Um, so even when I think of teams building culture or organizations, you just think, you know, if you treat people in that sort of way, they're literally sitting down with the, the you know, head chef and sharing, breaking bread and sharing wine. I mean, that was a, between the food piece and the, and the mm. kind of culture piece. I, that was one that really stuck in my mind to say, Jesus is uh and I think that's the hardest thing when we think of North America to Europe is, is food's just so embedded there mm -hmm. in how they live. Um, you know, Spain, Italy, France versus, you know, us, it sort of is, but it's, it's more like, should I go keto? Should I go plant-based? Should I go this? Should I go that? You know, there's, there's less wondering over there. I mean, there's, mm -hmm. there's adjusting, but not to the degree that we're sort of feeling our way out in the, 
in the UK and in, in North America? Well, it seems at times, and that's kind of the reason why I asked the question too, is, you know, having um, lived in a lot of different countries myself and traveled a lot. Um, and I always see that, that dimensional conversation around, you know, what should you eat? What shouldn't you eat? All these different kinds of things. And what I noticed when in visiting France and some of these European countries is that food is, is far more a part of the culture. The culture is about taking the time. The culture is about the investment in the quality of all these mm-hmm. things that sometimes we don't, going back to your what's sexy, what's not kind of concept, it, it's not about, it's not always about what, how the calorie construct is or what you're actually eating. It's about, you know, how you're engaged in the, I call it the mindset of, of what this all means to you versus, you know, just shoving food in your mouth and moving to the next thing. So you get, and I'm just wondering yeah. what you've sort of observed and sort of come cultivated from that yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think you've hit it right on the head. I mean, I think, you know, mirroring is such a big thing too, isn't it? I mean, when kids grow up in France, they just eat a certain way and then they, eat that way when they're older like there's not you know as much as we sort of like analytically try to as we're dealing with this obesity epidemic and type 2 diabetes epidemic we're trying to analytically inform people of what the right thing to do is and it sort of comes back to the you know chip and dan Heath's example of the you know the rider and the elephant and the rider of course is sort of like the thinking brain and the elephant is you know the unconscious the emotional limbic system and it's a nice analogy because obviously the elephant is moving the, the rider, right? The rider can try its best. Um, and so, you know, for them, it's so deeply embedded in culture. That's the elephant, right? It's just like they identify, hey, I'm French, I'm Italian, I'm Spanish. This is how we do things. And so there's less of like trying to convince. And I feel like, you know, one of the shortcomings we have is we try to just give people information. Like this is why you should eat this way. We're trying to just come at it from a, if we could just give them more information, then we could solve the problem but we're not really getting to the, the core of why people are struggling, you know, that emotional piece or the, you know, tying it to that, you know, that person's identity, those types of things. And so, um, you know, from, from a big level, that's one aspect. And the other one, when we look at like Mediterranean diet, you know, it's sort of the default gold standard. And when you look around all the countries around the Mediterranean, I mean, ultra processed food, you know, the amount that they spend on ultra processed food is less than 20%. Mm-hmm. You know, places like Italy, it's like 13 and France is 14. And I'm over here in the UK. And if you get on a train in Paris and go to London, which is like two hours, and you step out the train station, ultra processed food consumption purchasing goes up to 50% plus, you know, Crazy. which is the same in Canada and the same in, in America. And so when we look at all the problems in general health, I mean, this is part of the problem, right? Like our environment is loaded with a lot of calories. And if we're not sleeping and stressed, like it's normal to crave sugar, salt, fat, another glass of wine at night. Like these, these are just normal responses. And so mm-hmm. it becomes difficult to, to have everybody swimming upstream because if they're not, the current's pulling them down towards that. And if, if we tie this into sort of an athletic standpoint, like I always think of coaches, you know, when we talk about performance nutrition, we're always focused on the athlete. But when we think about the coaches – and their health, that has a big impact on the bottom line. When we think about the performance staff, mm-hmm. they're staying up late. They're waking up early. They're not eating. Like all of these things start to impact their ability to perform their best. Um, and, and that's a conversation that I feel like I'm only maybe just starting now around, you know, 
around what we're doing to actually fuel the rest of the team versus just the athlete. No, absolutely. Um, I'm going to circle back to that for sure. Cause that's a beautiful subject. Um, what, do, <clears throat> you know, you're obviously very passionate about what you do. How do you fall in love with it? What, what is it that makes you fall in love with your vocation? Yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, helping people is a big part of it, right? I mean, and from the athletic, the, the competitive side, you know, from an athlete standpoint of helping people achieve their goals and, and digging into that. Um, but then some, you know, but then also on the other side, you know, you zoom out to 30,000 feet, you're like, Jeff, you know, this, this guy or gal with three kids at home and single parent and two jobs, you know, overweight, pre-diabetic, like, geez, they're working their tail off. It'd be pretty nice to help, help them out too. Right. We always, you know, that, that, that to me is also high performance. If we can do some things to support them and, you know, you talked before about maybe some aha moments. I think that living in France and just cooking my food all the time and, and walking home and picking up fresh food every day, like that you just bought your food on the way home. You know, that's just what everybody did. Um, so another sort of just environmental thing that, or if you're eating bread, it's fresh bread that was literally baked. You know, you get the patisserie in every corner, right? You can smell it from a mile away. It's literally baked right there. And so that also, you know, that kind of bread is different than, you know, that one that's in our supermarket that's been sitting there for two or three weeks. And, you know, I understand why we need to package stuff to a certain degree, but all of those sort of little things end up contributing to, you know, to, to where we're at with, uh, if we look at kind of health in general and what we're struggling with as a, you know, as a society. So how does the, the sport performance side of things sort of come to fruition for you? Obviously you're, you're educating yourself. You're getting into this this world of naturopathic medicine, and so how do you start to get into sport performance and connecting the dots between the two? Yeah, I mean, the the years working in London as a as a personal trainer that was that was great. We had a tremendous team in the, in London in the UK, and so learned a lot just around exercise and movement. And started to really appreciate how that impacts health. And then, you know, just by chance, I ended up working in a clinic with uh, Sam Sam Gibbs, who I think. <laughs> that on the podcast mm-hmm. and, and really the naturopathic side just brings kind of that holistic mindset of knowing that there's all these different things that are contributing to health and sam's a pretty broad thinker and he's uh, got a real passion for nutrition and and so you know we started working with you know he's obviously been with canada basketball for we always joke around since he was 12 you know <laughs> it's like <laughs> um, but he, he brought me in to help out with some of the younger athletes and this was more on the physical side initially and then you know as our scope grew and everything else i was doing more on the nutrition piece and then over the years now we've really been ramping that up um and it's nice from a you know we work with our 13 year olds right up to our senior team and so you know being able to work with kids when they're 13 or 14 now is a real becoming the real passion of, Hey, if we, if we get things right here, then geez, that conversation's a heck of a lot easier when they're 20, 21, 22, you know, it's, everything's just rolls into it nicely. We're, you know, we're still having to, even though kids these days know a lot more than we did at 2021, 20, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's still some education around, around feeling for basketball because you can, a bit like, you know, soccer or football, as they call it over here. I mean, you, because it's a skill-based sport, you can get all the way up that ladder with just, you know, for basketball, if you're six foot eight and 44 inch vertical and pretty skilled, I mean, you can make it all the way there without thinking about your nutrition too much. But ultimately, if you don't feel enough, then injury risk, you know, catching colds and flu, like all these things start to come in. And so, you know, we've seen more of our traditionally when we started out more of the older players. And when I say older, like late 20s, early 30s or mid 30s, getting more interested in nutrition to prolong career. 
And now you're starting to see that trend shift more to even when guys are coming in the league, okay, what do I need to do to set myself up, you know, to have a good first two, three, four years, um, whether it's with the team nutritionist, whether it's with some players bringing in their own chef. Um, so that's been, that's been cool to see because you see how these kids' appetites change from when they're in university and you're going back and forth with telling them what to eat in the canteen and they don't want to eat this and they don't like that. And then all of a sudden the environment again of being around, you know, grown men with a professional team, it's amazing how, wait a minute, I've been telling you to eat that for the last three years. And now in, in four months of hanging out with these guys, you, it's, you love it. So I think from a nutrition standpoint, that's the hardest thing because there's so much human aspect of it, right? Like this, I always found for exercise, if you're lifting, you can, you know, it's a bit more straightforward in that sense of you get stronger, you buy in. Whereas, um, you know, they talk about nutrition a bit like deep learning, right? Like if you're learning a language or learning the guitar, like it, in the first month, you don't feel like you're learning anything, but you just got to trust the process and, and keep going with it. And then, and then it comes out, right? Mm-hmm. In your own personal growth and in, in, in learning to use the, cause you learn the information and the knowledge and then you deport it to others, et cetera. What have you discovered in that process over time that maybe you were a little bit dogmatic in the beginning about and have realized maybe I don't need to be so serious about this. I need to be more serious about this when you're, when you're counseling your athletes, what's, what's modified since your learning side of things. Yeah, that's, a, that's another great question. And another one where sports really helped me out with this because like in sport is winning or losing, right? It's outcome. But for some reason, oftentimes, I mean, in nutrition, it's almost like we get so enamored with the process. And this can mm-hmm. come from a medical doctor, a dietitian, whomever, of like, you know, you're going to follow this diet. Like, you, like this is the tool you're going to use. And that's the biggest change over the years of like, I try to say this in the nicest way to my client. I don't care what you eat. You know, I've got, <laughs> I got enough things to do. Like, like, what, like the thing, the tool you use, whether you're hitting a six iron, a five iron, a seven iron, hit whatever one you like. But all of these tools operate by the same rules, right? They're operating by the same principles. So if, I, if over the months we can coach you up on how some of these principles work, then you, know, you can figure out, hey, we're going to go low-carb for this meal. We're going to add in the carbohydrates here. Um, but I think that's the biggest thing. Initially, you think you've got this sort of system of, okay, this is the exact strategies that will yield the outcome. Mm-hmm. And now I would say there's still a system, but the system is more based on trying to build the mindset buy-in piece and getting people's expectations. Because if all they do is stick with it, we know they'll get there, which is always the hard, you know, people drop off all the time. You know, we talk about general population, right? You try to lose some weight, you get stuck, and then you stop. Hmm. But it's sort of like you don't realize that getting stuck is part of the whole deal, right? And so when you get stuck is when you get a chance to learn you know, what are the roadblocks? Why are we getting stuck? Because it doesn't matter which diet you pick, you're going to get stuck. Mm-hmm. And so if we keep the shotgun approach of going around trying, you know, this and then 90 degrees that way and then 180 degrees to this diet, you never end up kind of digging deep enough to figure out why, uh, why those roadblocks are there. So I definitely would say from the starting point to where I am now, it's like, you know, I'll have some conversations with athletes now where it's a half an hour call and we talk about, their background and everything else for 28 minutes and the last two <laughs> a couple of questions about nutrition. And then we give them the first thing to do. Um, and before I, you know, probably would have been a bit apprehensive about that. It's like, mm-hmm. isn't this person expecting a long winded soliloquy all around nutrition and this does this. And, 
Whereas now it's more like, let's, let's find out why this person's trying to achieve this thing. Let's, let's try to tie that to some of the values and traits they have. And then let's just drip feed it in kind of slowly so we can want them almost want them wanting more, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are, who are pulling the process rather than, you know, too, too many years of trying to crack the whip. It's like, it doesn't work as well as you'd think. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in that you, you mentioned early on about your own self-discovery and almost experimental reaction to changing some things in your own diet that changed your, your reaction to the food. And um, as you've gone through this process of learning and working with different people, like the thing that's always struck me is every human's different. And so, you know, a lot of times, whether it's in sport performance or nutrition or what have you, we get sometimes a little bit dogmatic about, as you said, the process or the system, like this is the diet that works, or this is the program that works. And there's, there's this realization as you get older and work through this, that every individual is completely sort of completely different. There are some common threads and and common things. How are, how do you discover in your client what's going to work best for them? Cause you know, one person's going to have those reactions to those foods and get those, you know, mucus membrane reactions, et cetera. And another person's going to be absolutely fine and it's not going to affect them. One person's going to develop heart disease eating these foods and other person's not. And so what, what are we learning about that? And how are we, how are you modifying sort of the way you approach each person from that individual perspective? Yeah, it's another another great question. I think one of the nice papers that was written recently is called "Personalized Nutrition: Why Are You So Special?" <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like the fundamentals are still common to eighty percent. You know, there's eighty percent of the story, and so I think for me that's one of the ones of like, okay, we're going to start with protein, and we're going to try to set an intake based on what your goals are, and we want to develop the habits that you can achieve that in a day to the point where you don't need to think about it anymore. You know, and that we want to build that sort of you know habits and ultimately automation of like just like sitting in your car you know you sit down you put your seatbelt on you don't do it because you're inspired or motivated i mean maybe at one point you were you don't even do it because you're disciplined you just you sit there and automatically you make the reaction and so you know from a nutrition standpoint i think that you know that's what we're trying to achieve is basically we want to get to the point where you we don't want our clients making food decisions all day long right there's too many decisions to make it's it's got to get to the point where a bit like an athlete, you know, I mean, I think, you know, you might agree where not every elite and professional athletes waking up at five or five thirty and just jumping out of bed, like Rocky Balboa, like this is another day to get it. You know, they're, they're like every human, they wake up and hit the alarm and curse. But the difference is most of them don't even think twice about not showing up. Right. They just do it. Whereas the general client wakes up and goes, should I run? Should I not? Should I lift? Should I, should I go back to bed? Um, so that's one piece of trying to get those fundamentals and try to automate them. The other one, to your point, I mean, this is where we, we, we tend to jump full stop into protocols. So, for example, myself and back to that, you know, my high school, early college was with dairy and, and weight concentrate and all these things that I was putting in that was helping me to get to, you know, 190. But and so back then, and it's funny now, you know, when you're when you're a certain age, you see trends coming all the way back, you know, like vanilla ice is popular again vegan diets but like things come all the way so back then i went to a you know a vegan diet and i felt better i felt great you know but and this is where i felt great for a while because the dairy was all gone right all the dairy was out of my diet 
So it felt really good for a while. And all of a sudden, you know, starting to get some fatigue, things aren't quite there. And so this is when you start to appreciate that you, you, know, you don't have to, it's, it's nice to adopt a certain strategy full stop because when you're learning something, it just provides real mm-hmm. rudders of this is what you're supposed to do. But you start to realize it wasn't until I actually, st- you know, even when I initially started traveling to Central America, I was, I was still vegan, but I, I realized pretty quickly that was going to be a challenge for, for me over the course of a year. So I started adding more, you know, more meat, more chicken, more fish, and I felt better. So now all of a sudden I was like, okay, for me, it has to be lactose-free dairy or I can't do dairy, but now adding this other. And so that was a learning curve around, you know, clients still do this, right? It's like, I'm going to go keto or I'm going to go low fat. It becomes a hundred percent all or nothing all day long, all week long approach. And it's because they're busy people and they have other things to do in their lives. If you tell them for breakfast, we're eating this way, they say, well, you want me to go keto then, or you want me to go low carb? It's like, no, 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 no. Just that meal there, we're just going to reduce. And then the next meal we might. um, And so, you know, that's a challenging part because with nutrition, everybody eats. And so everybody's sort of an expert, right? And so trying to build in, okay, here are the fundamentals. But then on top of that, what we talked about of, okay, this person doesn't react well to this food or that food. We're going to turn that down. But we're going to make sure, you know, some of the myths around things like even, you know, red meat intake, if it's from things like steak or real foods, you know, you know these things aren't causing adverse health outcomes. They're, they're, they're supporting better outcomes. So how do we... You know, is that beneficial for this athlete? Because especially with female athletes, you know, low iron, B12, all these things, you know, somebody comes in, they've got a whole mitt full of bag full of supplements, and you think to yourself, geez, we're taking 10 different pills and powders here. If we just eat this and this, we're going to save $100 a month, and we're going to correct for those things. And so I think that's where over time just getting more comfortable with, okay, this is um, and personalization can feel more sexy, but again, it's, it's a smaller, a bit like being in the weight room. I mean, you've got your fundamentals and the things you need to get done. And then, you know, from there you're adding on and it's the same in, in nutrition. Well, it's the context of, uh, understanding sometimes too, that I think people don't get enough of in their, <clears throat> the process of education. Like you said it before, I think a lot of nutrition usually starts with a lot of people around weight management to some degree, uh, in athletes, it's about performance, but the things that I find don't get spoken about a lot. And I'm curious what your thoughts are now about that is how does food affect mindset, energy, mood? Uh, how does food affect, uh, you know, gut health, gut motility uh how does food affect uh you know uh, your weight um, distribution or management how does it affect true performance you know so there's all these different factors and i think we usually gravitate to one because that's the one we've we're trying to change. Like you see this in, in the performance spectrum all the time with athletes, like endurance athletes, big conversation on the net now about what's the best way to food, feed yourself through endurance. Mm-hmm. And you're getting people yelling at each other about, you know, well, you should eat this or you should eat that. Well, at the end of the day, they don't talk about gut health, gut motility, all that kind of stuff. You know, so the person's some shoving this food in for performance, but they, you know, they feel like crap, <laughs> you yeah. know? So, so there's a lot of different factors. How do, how have you, in some sense, objectified or uh, created objective measures around that in terms of your performance spectrum so that you're kind of dialing each thing for your athlete in a way that you're covering those bases versus just focusing on one performance outcome? 
Yeah, I mean, I think a, a good place to start is around, it's almost the opposite of dealing with the general population. Like with athletes, we're trying to get as much fuel in as we can, especially the more elite they get. You know, a sport like ice hockey, basketball, football. I mean, these any sports, there's contact. There's going to be increased caloric demands. Sports with a lot of stop and start and accelerations, decelerations, like basketball or soccer again. And so we need to get a certain amount of fuel on board, which means that eating some, you know, less than ideal foods or less than clean foods is actually okay. Um, the problem is we then start to, if we just get really reductionist and say, we, we need this many carbs and this many calories, we start just pumping in then, you know, the sport drinks and the sugars and this bar and this cereal. And this is when we can start to get into problems, you know, and we see even now in kind of youth recreational sport, you know, a kid plays soccer and burns 250 calories and then drinks 350 afterwards. It's like, whoa, whoa what's going on here? You know, we're, we're overfueling. Um, when we get into the more elite levels, it can be more to do with sort of like this blood glucose kind of roller coaster of, you know, basketball, the classic is after a game, if guys don't maybe eat so well right afterwards, maybe they're not as hungry at midnight or one in the morning, they're knocking back a bag of Oreos. And it's like, well, wait a minute, that's not the right time. If you had that bag of Oreos right after the game, we might actually have a different effect. Um, and so it does become confusing even for, let's say, parents who are working with youth elite athletes because it's like, no, we want your kid to have some fruit juice or, or this type of drink to get enough calories in. Whereas maybe the kid in their class who's trying to lose weight we hear this global discussion around trying to stop drinking juice so much and these types of things. So that's a tricky one for, you know, parents of the general population, even, even, you know, a GP who's seeing the general population, because it's like, you know, this youth athlete needs 3,500 or, you know, 4,000 calories and you can't get there eating heads of broccoli, you know, <laughs> broccoli is good for you, but you know, it's interesting even with vegetables, if we, if we tangent here for a minute, like the biggest benefit you get with vegetables is when you go from low intake to moderate intake. Like that's taking you a lot of the way up the bell curve. You know, once you go from moderate to high intake, there's still benefits, but they're a lot smaller. You know, and I think for a lot of people, especially when I deal with men, men's health, like we don't need people to eat ridiculous amounts of vegetables, but we do need people to eat enough or enough fruit and things like that. Um, so for the general population, we want to get that in, but for those, for the athletes, we need to find a way to get enough fuel on board. Um, and so, you know, at the highest level now we see with, with the performance facilities and the, and the staff, they're trying to take care of these meals. So guys will show up, you know, if they're playing for the Raptors, the NBA or, you know, breakfast is served, right. Which is pretty smart because a lot of athletes will, that'll be the meal. They, you know, they serve lunch as well. So now they've, you know, they've got a chunk of the day taken care of, but from that high level, I mean, we need to increase that meal frequency as best we can, because that's the simplest way to get people to eat more calories, you know, more protein is just to say, Hey, you need to eat six times <laughs> because the chances are we're going to hit it. If we give you more chances to consume. Mm -hmm. um, whereas again, in the general population, we're, we're almost trying to give the opposite message, right? You don't need to snack between breakfast and lunch. You know, you've, you've got plenty of calories on board. You can get there. You know, it's almost like getting back to what our parents used to do, right? It was breakfast, lunch, dinner by 6 PM. <laughs> and then it was over. Right. right. Um, so those are some of the, the different things to sort of consider. And I think with athletes, it's more around trying to get the simple sugars in immediately before sometimes during immediately after, but, but less so of just saying, well, you know, this kid doesn't play till 4 PM and it's 10 o'clock in the morning and we're going to give them all these really, you know, high carb, high calorie, 
mainly carbohydrates that'll drive glucose levels. You know, these snacks that's going to be really setting them up for uh, energy highs and lows throughout the day. You know, it's probably a, a short-sighted strategy. So tell me about the personal journey of writing a book about all of this. So <clears throat> when do you decide you should write a book and then when do you um, slap yourself for trying to do it and then, uh, then, exactly. then, then complete it? <laughs> as, I'm currently writing, as I'm currently writing my next book, I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm in the slapping myself mode of, uh, you know, what are you doing? Um, and it's funny because this book's all about midlife. <laughs> it's about the things that shift uh, in midlife, but um yeah, I think early on, I just found that if you sit down and talk to somebody in the visit, so you're verbally giving them the story and the instructions, because so much of it is just listening, people aren't that good listeners, right? They're much better. The thing I like about exercise is I'll show you how to do it. You watch, and then you can see, you know, and obviously there's variations on that. Um, but what I found was when I gave people things to read, they had the time to sit down and absorb it. Mm-hmm. on their own. And so I was a little bit amazed at how much progress or how much buy-in or how much understanding clients could get of like, okay, this is the whole story, you know? Um, and so that's what led me to say, okay, well, why don't we just put all this down, you know, the general kind of theme of, of philosophy, if you will, and then people can can take their time to digest it or go to certain areas. And I think that the biggest thing is, is just around that sort of buy-in because there's just not enough time and even an hour visit and again, this comes back to the rider and the elephant. Like if in the hour visit and you talk about things that have changed over a career, I used to spend most of that hour once we were done the intake of, of telling the person why and how this is going to work. Whereas that doesn't, you know, that doesn't move the elephant very well. You know, now we spend most, once we've gone through that, we talk all about how it's going to change them, change how they feel, you know, change these aspects about them and then finish with, you know, a very small directive on what they should do um, from a nutritional standpoint, like trying to really shrink that change. You know, how easy do we have to make it? Mm. You know, if a person doesn't eat breakfast and the smoothie's got 34 ingredients, you know, it might be the greatest smoothie ever made, but no one, the person's not going to make it, right? Like, um, so, so I think that's, uh, you know, that's a big factor there. Mm. I'm going to use this moment to read your purpose. I don't know if you ever listen to my podcast, but you, there's a little part I, I do. a book called The Day You Were Born. And you are born June 2nd, you said, right? Yeah. So Gemini 2, your purpose is to use the feelings and imagination of others to open you up to your own creativity without avoiding the direct experience and the truth. Whenever I have to choose between two evils, I always like to try the one I haven't tried before, Mae West. Now doesn't she make it all sound like fun? The two evils for the Gemini 2 are the mind and emotion. They both try to keep the person from a direct experience and from the truth. When the mind and emotion work together, logic directs the creative spirit to action and doesn't allow it to wallow in self-absorption. But when mind and emotion oppose each other, one pulls the other out of its chair. The moon is intuitive, emotional, and eccentric. Mercury is cool and mental with the common touch 
Gene Wilder, June 11th, exhibits the eccentricity of the moon in his characters. Teamed with Mel Brooks, the producers, and Blazing Saddles, insanity reaches new levels of mass appeal. Bill Walsh, the 49ers field boss, said of quarterback Joe Montana, June 11th, he is one of the coolest competitors, one of the great greatest instinctive players this game has ever seen, and I think he's just getting started. Instinct is the gift that will serve the Gemini 2 in everything they do. Mercury Moon people can have distinctive physical features like Bob Hope's nose, Stacy Keach's hair lip, or Gene Wilder's bug eyes. Denying emotions can create physical or mental problems for the Gemini too. JFK was a sickly child. He had asthma and a bad back and a roster of childhood diseases. His personal feelings were considered only after he fulfilled his father's political ambitions. As a result, intimacy was a problem that plunged John Kennedy throughout his or plagued John Kennedy throughout his life. Loners by nature, they fear having the love they so desperately desire. Interesting um, one. <laughs> the, that rider and the elephant seemed to actually <laughs> set that up there. Jeez, I didn't realize that. Uh, and your plagued um, um, nose goop when you were a kid is probably part of part of all of that. So yeah, yeah, self discovery like, uh, in that process. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Jeez. How did you uh, meet your partner? We actually met in India years wow. ago traveling yeah um and so ultimately she uh came back to canada to live for a while and then uh, and then that's what brought me over here uh, to the uk so it's uh you know travel's been sort of a theme a theme in uh, in the last few years but uh, it's been a lot of travel so hopefully hopefully a bit of uh and solid during all of come, this but, you have three girls seven four and two i think you said so you've got yeah you you are glutton for punishment, but what is what is fatherhood and fatherhood of girls taught you about yourself? Uh, I mean, you could, you could have a whole podcast <laughs> just on this. <laughs> the one thing you've had, I mean, going to three kids now is just a total loss. There's just no more control. I mean, there was an illusion of control with one and two, but once you get to three, you realize there's absolutely. And so that's, you know, when you're man to man to zone defense is the, the yeah, exactly. friend said to me one time. <laughs> you become a bit of a control freak and you realize there's no more control. You have to, you know, I always thought in yoga class before that was meditation. I'm like, okay, this is, uh, this is really meditation here with the, uh, you know, kids going left and right. But, uh, no, it's been fun. And, you know, having girls, it's interesting when you see, I don't know, for a, for a dad, I always thought, you know, with a son, you're just familiar with sport. And so the connection is just, okay, we could, whereas once you have girls, they still play sports, but there's all these other interests that, you know, you're like, okay, I guess we're doing this today. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's been a big learning curve around just seeing things through a different lens. And, you know, um, at first you're a bit frustrated, like, don't you want to bounce this basketball? Come on. this, this. <laughs> But you learn pretty quick that, pushing them into trying to bounce is not the way to go. So we just, uh, you know, have a good time trying to run around and do whatever they're into. And I've noticed they start to gravitate more towards certain things, the less, the less I try to push it. So that's definitely, uh, you know, probably something I should have realized earlier since that's a theme with the clients as well. Right. <laughs> yeah. Having a daughter myself who's 12 now, she gets into the, uh, stick on fingernails and all this stuff. But at the same time she wants to play basketball and my wife's going, you're going to go play basketball and you just put press on nails and say, yeah. No question. It's like, let's have the best of both worlds here. 
<laughs> Tell me about this next book. What is it you're trying? Where, where, where are you going with that? And what are you trying to sort of examine and in, in doing the this next one? Yeah, the next one's just a shorter, uh, a shorter form book it's called Peak Forty, and it sort of just addresses you know much of what we talked about here. But this idea of like in midlife, what are the things that start to creep up on us? Right? I mean, you get busy with work, you're not sleeping with because you have kids at home or because work's busy, and then all these little changes start to happen, and you know all of a sudden you realize you maybe don't have the energy or you know, some of the you know, high blood pressure or some of these things start to crop up. And so it was interesting to look into some of the research around, you know, nutrition and exercise and things in midlife that we can, that we can do. And much of what we talked about, it's just trying to, what I do with clients, like how can we just provide a little roadmap here to make things a little bit less complex? You know, mm-hmm. like let's start here and do this. Well, you know, start of the day, let's, let's then move over here. And so, the book explores that a similar theme to the first one with, you know, talking about that whole recovery piece and how sleep impacts everything. And then, you know, finishes off with mindset because that's the thing that, that drives everything. And I think to, you know, a lot of clients that are my general population that are type A and, and used to achieving in their jobs and success, it almost comes back to bite them when they try to make behavior changes because they're so used to achieving the thing that when they don't, you know, Inevitably, they're not going to succeed with the nutrition stuff because it's just that's the way it works. And then, you know, they'll drop off for a little while and then they'll come back. And it's almost like they want to always wait until I'm going to wait until I've got the time. And, and you're like, that's not going to work. We got to just take one small step. Don't worry if it's not perfect. Then let's take another one. And then that's that's the hardest part to kind of convey. But uh, mm-hmm. so the book's kind of all around uh, all around that piece. And of course, <laughs> being in the thick of it, I feel hopefully we'll be able to convey a bit of that because it is amazing how, you know, again, like I said, just lack of sleep alone, how that starts to trickle down and percolate into all the different areas, right? Mm-hmm. What do you, uh, you know, you're bringing up three girls. What do you hope um, you convey to them? Um, that they take away from their dad when when they're all grown up. Yeah, I mean, this is one where you, you even recently start to realize you just so dialed into getting things done at work or achieving this or that um, that you don't realize you're getting locked into certain behaviors. And like, you know, my two year old will take the earbuds out of my ears, you know, and off the phone because she will, you know, she doesn't want she wants my attention, you know. Um, and so this is, and it's nice to be able to work predominantly from home, but, you know, you sort of realize, and I think back to my parents, they were both self-employed, so they were home a lot. Um, and so just being, the, you know, being able to have your full attention, which sounds really easy when you say it, doesn't it? I mean, just pay, just have your full attention. It's nothing, you know. Um, but when you, when you're in the, in the, in the game, you know, when you're in it, it's, it's, it's a challenge. And I think that's one of the things we're really trying to orient myself to that and, I, another good one I heard was around just the conversations, you know, the five minutes in the morning or five minutes after school, this time with your kids that, you know, even those conversations sort of matter. Cause I think sometimes you always think we don't have enough time to, so hopefully through those, we can start to embed some of the, some of the values and whatnot, but man, it, uh, I don't know about you, but this whole social media world, <laughs> it's fine when you don't have kids, but once you have kids, you just think, geez, what is, you know, what's it's going challenging. on on the other side of that film is, um, it's challenging. So that, that recent Netflix film as well, or documentaries kind of really opens the eyes to it. And so, you know, 
It's the same face multiplied. Yeah, it's the same face multiplied by ten that we used to have when our parents would come in the room and we'd just be staring at the TV. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. Like how innocuous does that seem now, right? Like watching too much TV. Now that's you know, I wish I'm trying to get my kids to watch too much TV now. Not uh, you know, it's all those questions around when do you get a phone? Like when do you? Mm. But um, but yeah, I mean, hopefully you know, my wife's active as well, so hopefully just being able to spend time doing things together and you know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I have found in that, you know, uh, that the engagement in sport and activity and physicality, and that's a huge part of this, the, so the counterbalance to all that for sure. Um, yeah. when you don't engage. And so the fact that you guys are active people and doing active things is a, is a positive influence that at least if you can fill some of that time with things, cause you know, it's an, it's an easy go-to when you don't have things to do. Right. And yeah, that's one of our problems as humans, which I'm discovering as I get older is this, you know, we don't do well with space. You know, when we have space, we fill it and it's yeah. what we fill it with and social media has become, or playing with our devices has become an easy way to fill space. Yeah. Versus maybe back in the day, it was, you know, for our grandparents, it was reading a book or listening to the radio, you know, yeah. which maybe in some ways more learned than what's going on now. But at the same time, you know, every one of these things has a, a positive and a negative. Some of the things that they're learning, they, they can turn into yeah. businesses and oh, big you know, time. Succeed. <laughs> there's some social influencers out there that are making some yeah, good no, money sure. doing things for sure. Well, so. it's funny you mentioned that too. I mean, even at university or like definitely high school, just hanging out with your buddies with, you know, there's no TV on and your friends and you're just sitting around just talking, which now when we look at our young squad, like you said, there's so many benefits to technology, but there's, there's, if they're all hanging out, the phone comes out pretty quick. And so it's, uh, mm-hmm. and so I think I, the last point, actually, when you asked me about the, about the girls, I think laughter is a big one as well, where I think you can get so dialed in and so competitive with what you want to accomplish that everything becomes serious. For, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, wait a minute, let's time out. You know, <laughs> so that's another one that, uh, let's between, just be, between yeah. the screaming and the crying. I feel like there's always somebody crying or screaming in, in our house at the moment with the kids, the age they are, but, uh, and most of the time it's me, but <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm I'm dialing a little bit into and I'm you know also contemplating the, the writing of a book at some point. But something that's interesting me a lot is the idea of creativity, and we've kind of lost that. Uh, you know, the commingling of imagination and space is where we kind of find that that idea of creativity. And to some degree, I think some sometimes we bias in that creative mind to create negative stuff instead of positive stuff. You know, and it's how we how allow ourselves to manifest the positive things in our creative space. And I think our kids do that very naturally to an age, but then social media or the toys start to replace that natural affinity for um, finding things to do that we did maybe um, that they don't do as much now because the machines kind of become the default. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I see that at the moment. Yeah. The girls are just, I mean, the things they do and play with and imagination and interaction and you sort of holding on to the edge of the chair going like we're coming up to that age where all of a sudden, you know, you can fall into some of those traps. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. I guess just being cognizant of it's the first step, but. So when they ask you to play dress up, you gotta, you gotta go. Along. You gotta go. Yeah. You gotta, get that <laughs> <laughs> gotta make sure that dress up box is definitely fully stocked for sure. Yeah, I mean, well, that's a, pretty sorry. Awesome. I mean, uh, yeah. I've never had my nails painted so much in my life. You know, it's like that one's kind of, yeah, we've all been there, done that with the girls for sure. 
Well, that's a fantastic way to finish. Uh, it's been a nice hour getting to know you and hopefully our paths will cross face to face at some future point, but uh, good luck with everything you're up to. And uh, thanks for taking the time today. Absolutely. Totally appreciate it. Thanks for so much for having me on. Yeah. Have a good day. Thanks, man. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Payne, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.